immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, hello everyone again. Congratulations to those who've made it to the fourth episode of Turn on the Light. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening to me waffle. Um, For those who don't know me, my name is Louise. I am your host um, and I'm here to bring you joyous tales of the natural world. Um, I come to you recording at a bit of a funny time at the moment, um, unless, you know, you've been on Mars or something, then you will have definitely heard about coronavirus um, and all of the uh, measures that are being put in place across the world to sort of mitigate the spread of that. Um, so I come, I'm recording this at the moment in my bedroom um, with the prospect of being here for quite some time, um, facing the prospect of working from home for the foreseeable future from Monday onwards, um, which the idea is nice to begin with, you know, don't have to set the alarm for 6am for the commute in, so that will be nice, um, but I feel like I'm going to go a little bit mental Um So it's good to have something like this podcast to um, talk about some positive things and to put some positivity out there and and also to give me something to focus on Um, and hopefully give you guys something to focus on that's not um, coronavirus. Um, But obviously, you know, it's a time where we all do need to be cautious and just to take on board the advice that we're given Um, and hopefully that will stop that that bell curve. I don't know if you've seen seen the graphs. It will sort of flatten that the bell in the bell curve um, and will help protect the vulnerable and the elderly in our societies by just being sensible um, and following advice. Um, So that's enough about that. (laughs) And at the beginning of each episode, I try to bring uh, some recent good news into your life from the past week or so um, since I last spoke to y'all. So today that is the news that the culling of badgers across England is to be phased out. Incredible didn't want it in the first place, didn't believe in it in the first place, and now it's been decided that that is going to be slowly taken down until it doesn't happen anymore. Um, So for those who don't know, it was introduced as a way to combat the spread of bovine tuberculosis back in 2013, Um, and since then around 100,000 badgers have been culled. Um, But scientists have backed the decision to move away from culling to vaccinations after an independent review found it not to be effective at controlling the spread which, you know, scientists and environmentalists have been saying that for years, but, you know, it's good that they've come to the realisation anyway. Um, And that instead um, of culling, the tightening of controls on cattle movement is the way forward and the way to go to stop the spread of this disease, um, as the best estimates show that cattle herds um, are actually infected by other herds of cattle that already have bovine tuberculosis, not through badgers. Um, so cattle-based measures necessary and of course vaccinating the cattle and vaccinating the badgers um, as a sort of whole circular um, preventative measures but culling is not going to happen Um, so yay for our iconic wildlife species the little badger love those little fellas I was out doing some ecological surveys once in the Suffolk countryside um, at dusk and there was, I sort of turned around in this field and there was a badger snuffling away at my feet, literally about a foot, two feet in front of me. And it just so happened that the wind was in the right direction, that he couldn't really smell me and he wasn't like looking directly in, in, to my, in my direction. Um, so I was able to stand there for a good few minutes, just taking him in and watching him snuffle about and doing his badgery business, which was amazing. And they're beautiful creatures. So I'm so happy about this piece of news and I'm sure many more of you will be also. Now, moving on to our much more watery species in the spotlight. This week is the grey whale. And I will attempt to say the scientific name, Eschristus robustus. Okay, so about the grey whale. There are two extant genetically distinct populations of grey whales. Um, Just a quick note there, extant is just the opposite of extinct. Um, So extant means, you know, living viable populations. Um, So there are two extant populations of grey whales living today, and that's the eastern North Pacific and the western North Pacific populations. Um, There are species of baleen whale, like our old friends the humpback whale from the last episode, 
Um, and these guys can reach up to 15 meters and weigh up to 40 tons. Um, so they are a similar size to our humpback friends. But what is not similar is their unique approach to meal times. Instead of filtering plankton and fish like a lot of other baleen whales, they will scoot sideways along the sea floor, vacuum up, up clouds of sediment to sieve out worms, crustacean and other small animals and benthic animals um, for their meals. Um, benthic just meaning the substrate of the seafloor. Um, so they're quite unique in their feeding habits. Um, and like many whales, they have long migrations from summer feeding grounds in the cold northern waters of the Arctic to southern warmer waters um, where they go to their breeding lagoons off the coast of Baja, California, Mexico. Um, now, you'd be right in thinking that that seems like a bloody long way to swim um, from feeding to breeding. And you'd be right. Um, it is the most grueling and the longest mammal migration of any mammal species on Earth. And in fact, in 2015, a new record was set by a female grey whale called Vivara, um, who migrated 13,988 miles. Or for you uh, metric folks, that's 22,511 kilometres in 172 days. That's a long ass way to go. So well done. Um, so despite these epic migrations, they tend to stick to shallower waters, which are close to coastlines, usually no more than 20 miles um, out or so 30 kilometres offshore. Um, and that is actually, sadly, a factor that made them very easy targets for whalers across Europe, Asia and the Americas. And this brings me on to what and to why I'm talking about them as a conservation success story, because obviously their numbers had to decline in order to come back. Um, and this is the reason why. Um, so populations were decimated by centuries of human hunting. Um, and by the mid 1970s, no, by the mid 1700s, the Atlantic population went extinct. So as if you recall, just a couple of minutes ago, I was saying there's the two extant species existing today in the Pacific Ocean. There was a population in the Atlantic Ocean, and they actually went extinct in the 1700s because of this mass commercial whaling. Um, a lot of the whaling happened as their blubber was used in oil lamps at the time. Um, so that was sort of the main driver of it. Um, so commercial whaling of grey whales... Uh, happened across the 17th to the 20th centuries and, ha and had a massive, massive impact on the populations of these guys. Um, and both the eastern and the western North Pacific populations were also, also pushed to the brink by these whaling activities. Uh, the eastern population was hunted by the Americans. Um, it began in 1845 when two vessels called the Hibernia and the United States, very uh, imaginative original name for your boat there, uh, so they went out and they caught 32 whales in Magdalena Bay. Um, and this started just a slew um, of hunting vessels going out in following winters. And the hunting stepped up in 1855. Um, and between 1855 and 1865, that was known as the Bonanza period, in little air quotes there, during which time uh, grey whaling along the coast of Baja, California, reached its peak. Um, so, as I just said, the lagoons of Baja California are their breeding lagoons. It's their calving lagoons um, where there's a lot of pregnant females, a lot of babies. Um, and this was sort of seen as, you know, an absolute prime spot to be able to hunt these guys, um, catch calves, catch pregnant females. Um, so that's what they did. Um, and between the beginning of the beginning of this whaling in 1845 to 1874, an estimated 8,000 grey whales were killed. So that was, you know, the height of things in that bonanza period, as I said there. Um, from this time, hunting did continue sporadically, um, with uh, just over 200 caught between 1919 and 1929, um, and still, even up to 1964 and to 1969, around 300 caught. That was claimed to be for scientific purposes. That's, you know, a contentious point. Uh, may or may not be a bit of a front to say it's for science, but, you know, anyway, it happened. Around 300 um, were caught between 1964 and 1969. Yes. So, and then the Western population were hunted by the Japanese beginning in 1570, so a lot earlier. 
Um, but the real damage here was done between 1911 and 1933, when approximately 1,449 were killed. And by 1934, this meant that that population were very, very close to extinction. Now, just a little, a little bit about this hunting. Grey whales actually earned the nickname devilfish due to their aggressive reactions when they were harpooned um, and the fact that they would actually charge whaling vessels, particularly if a calf was taken away from its mother. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting little factoid there about the mentality of the whalers at the, this time. Um, because to me, I think an understandable, justified reaction fish would be a better name. Um, you know, but what do I know? Um, so yes, all of this was happening. The numbers were totally decimated, real decline in the grey whale. So what was done to protect them? So today they are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, which I talked about last episode. Um, and that came about in 1972 after scientists and the public had increasing concerns that significant declines in marine species were caused by human activity. Um, and it's interesting, what's interesting about the Marine Mammal Protection Act is that their policy sort of rests on the basis that they want to stop po any marine mammal population declining past a point where they can function significantly as a part of their ecosystem. Um, so it's obviously for the species themselves, but it's also looking at the effect on the whole ecosystem. Um, so they're protected under that Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, they have actually also had protections in place since 19... Sorry, since... Yeah, since 1947 <laughs> um, by the International Whaling Commission. Um, the International Whaling Commission was formed just a year earlier in 1946 to regulate whaling worldwide. Um and of course, in last episode, I mentioned the 1980s moratorium on commercial whaling. Um, so in the 1980s, a moratorium, a temporary ban was put in place on all commercial whaling um, to strengthen protections that are already in place for these animals. Um, and also today, the Western population of grey whale are protected under the Endangered Species Act, um, which was passed by Congress in 1973. So since... All of these protections have been in place um, and since those first protections came in place in 1947, it has now led to a point where in the US and Mexico, eastern grey whales have complete legal protection. So it's totally illegal to hunt these whales now. So thanks to those protections, the eastern North Pacific grey whales have had a remarkable recovery. By 1994, numbers had increased so much and they were so abundant that the grey whales were actually taken off the endangered species list entirely, which is amazing. And the best estimates from the International Whaling Commission put the grey whale today at around 27,000, which is incredible. And that is about 20% of their pre-whaling population. Um, so by those numbers, you can see that it would their numbers were a hell of a lot higher before this whaling activity happened. But for them to have bounced back to 27,000 now is incredible. And once the site of slaughter, the carving lagoons in Baja, California, are now a refuge for these animals. Um, they're protected there and they host a thriving whale watching industry. Um, and a nice little thing, a nice little fact about whale watching in Baja is that you will frequently get mothers and calves sidling up to tourist boats they're curious they're playful they don't mind like sticking their snoots out of the water and saying hi to people um so it seems that they've forgiven us somewhat <laughs> so that's the eastern north pacific population what about the western north pacific population so these guys were actually thought to be extinct until 1972 but a remnant population does hang on off the coast of Russia, Japan and China. Numbers here. Um, this year, a paper was published, um, January 2020, and numbers are estimated to be at around 175 individuals with 33 reproductive females. And whilst that sounds pretty low, uh, it is enough actually to take them off the critically endangered list to the endangered list. And... Recently, there has been clear evidence of increasing numbers, which hasn't been there before. We just weren't sure whether the Western population will actually 
were actually doing okay if things were actually increasing but there has recently been evidence to show yes they are increasing at an average rate of two to four percent per year um and with these guys we think the delay between the conservation efforts um and the results showing is just the slow reproductive rates of these animals um but it is happening um, and further protections are put in place for these western grey whale populations um, to ensure that they can thrive as much as their eastern bros um, so five grey whale states japan russia south korea the us and mexico have all signed a memorandum of cooperation concerning the conservation measures for the western grey whale population so they haven't been forgotten about these guys are being protected as much as the eastern cousins and hopefully that increase in population will ever continue now obviously we've touched on the commercial whaling there um and spoken about how that was a massive factor in the decline to begin with um, and how numbers have bounced back which is incredible um but as always with this podcast i always want to say i don't want to mitigate um so i don't want to minimize other threats that these animals are facing and say you know it's all hunky-dory and just let them go off on their own or it'll be fine because obviously there are still protections that need to be in place and there are still conservation efforts that need to happen um so the threats that grey whales, whales still face um, are from things like entanglement in fishing gear, uh, being struck by vessels, disturbance from whale watching vessels, which um, is something I kind of touched on in the mountain gorillas episode, that ecotourism has its own uh, dangers associated with it. Um, ocean noise is also a factor in acoustically sensitive beings um, and, of course, climate change will have an effect on these animals as with most things on the planet but as i said um with so many protections in place from people like the international whaling commission the marine mammal protection act the endangered species act and organizations and governments working together to protect them like the noaa fisheries which stands for the national oceanic and atmospheric administration and oceana.org um these guys are working to ensure that habitats are maintained for these animals and that they're safe um, within their waters from human activities that still happen in the oceans. Um, so NOAA particularly are working with fishermen, with industry, with NGOs and academia um, to find, figure out ways to reduce bycatch and to reduce that fishing gear um, that's in the oceans so the whales don't get tangled up in, in that horrible stuff. Um, they're working to reduce collisions um, with vessels in the ocean. Um, so more regulations in place that people actually have to report when it happens, why it happened, um, and shipping lane restrictions sort of really strictly enforced. Um, of course, overseeing marine mammal health um, is a big part just watching how they're doing in general um and stranding response um so what happens when a, a whale is stranded why it's been stranded and how we react to that um noaa also are addressing ocean noise to see what can be done um to mitigate the effects of that um and the big one as i sort of touched as i spoke about the mountain gorillas regulation for watching them um they uh, uphold regulations for admiring whales from a distance and support responsible viewing of marine mammals um, with at least 100 yards between the person on land or on sea and the whale um, and they have sort of a big public awareness uh, campaign um, for the public to be whale wise um, so i like that i like that that's a nice nice sort of way to to put it whale wise so um all of these factors all of these protections and all of these organizations protecting these guys mean that both extant populations do have much brighter futures um, than they did have <laughs> in in the part in the recent past. Um, numbers are increasing um, for both populations, um, just at different points on the scale at the moment. Um, so the eastern guys, as I said, they're totally off the endangered species list now. They're they're um, they're not listed as vulnerable or anything. Um, and the western population went from critically endangered to endangered, so that's that's also getting better. Um, the species as a whole um, is now listed as least concern on the IUCN red list. Um, so still monitoring and protection is needed, of course, and it is happening. Um, so, you know, things can, can only go up from here and can only get better from here. Um, 
And just a nice quote here from the IUCN Director General, Inga Anderson. And she said, These conservation successes are proof that the ambitious collaborative efforts of governments, businesses and civil society could turn back the tide of species loss. Now that's a nice quote to end on, I think. Go grey whales! Um, and if you want to, to go and see them in Baja, California, uh, where in off the coast of Mexico, um, where the breeding lagoons are, then I highly recommend doing that and obviously adhering to the regulations for admiring whales from a distance. But they are wonderful animals um, and beautiful, serene beings. And I'm so glad that they're coming back um, in the same way that humpbacks are um, and that we still get to see these magnificent giants in our oceans. Okay, now it's time for the fun facts about the grey whale. So, these guys um, have a slate colour with little white patches, which gives them their name, the grey whale. Um, often, they have little parasitic beings covering their body and then dropping off, leaving the little white marks, um, like barnacles, um, things like that, making them look like an ocean rock when you see them sort of breaching out of the water there. Um, the interesting thing about the barnacles that they have on their body is that they're host-specific, so that there's only one grey whale for these little dudes, they just want those guys. Fun fact number two um, is dorsal fin is small and located at the far end of its back, not like other whales with a large central dorsal fin. So it's just a itty bitty little dorsal fin. Fun fact number three, baby grey whales can consume up to 80 gallons of milk per day. Per day. The mothers must be exhausted. And fun fact number four. Not much is known about their communications, but we do know that they communicate um, in low-pitched moans, whines, and croaks. So on that note, of course, here is some for your auditory enjoyment. very different to the humpback. And now to introduce my special guest for the episode, Miss Audrey Granger, who I currently work with at the Animal Welfare Organisation that we're both at. Um, she's a passionate wildlife conservation advocate and photographer holding a Master's in Wildlife Biology and Conservation. She's worked in South Africa, in Australia, in the UK, and she's worked out in Norway with sled dogs. Um, she's researched killer whales. She's just an all-round wonderful girl with such an understanding and a passion for conservation. Um, and I can't wait for us to get stuck in and talk to her. So let's do just that. Okay, so I'm sat here with Audrey Granger, um, who I did a little introduction for there. Um, so I won't sort of go over that again. Um, but yeah, just quickly, obviously, we met when we both started working at relatively the same time at um, the animal welfare charity that we work at now and are currently sat at now. <laughs> yeah, and um, lunch break. Yes, yeah, using our lunch break wisely. Um, yeah, and obviously when we started, we got chatting, realised we had the similar interests, similar backgrounds, um, and Audrey had just sort of recently completed um, her master's in wildlife biology and conservation. Um, and I'm going to first ask her about um, the paper that she wrote um, for that, which is very exciting, and I've had a read of that one. Um, and so in a nutshell, and in sort of like for the layman, for the everyday man, it's about killer whale tufts. <laughs> and how they wear down depending on um, the different populations of orcas that exist in different places, in different habitats, their ecotype, um, and how what they eat affects how their teeth wear down. Um, so I'll hand over to Audrey to tell us a bit about the paper, and um, I guess the first question is, what inspired you to look at killer whale troops? Um, so I get asked this question a lot about killer whales. <laughs> 
And honestly, Free Willy, the movie, <laughs> is honestly what made me love Killer Whales. And I know it maybe is a bit of a controversial thing to say, but watching it from like the age of whenever I could start watching TV. Yeah, we're um, kids. Like, yeah, exactly. And I grew up only watching the second movie, not realising there was a one and a three. <laughs> so like my world was blown apart when I realised there was a one and a three. Oh, great. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> so then I did this master's and I thought, you know, I've got a paper to do. What can I do that might lend something to the scientific community for an animal that I love that's killer whales um obviously I knew going into the masters I had to write a thesis Mm -hmm. so at the very start I started emailing people left right and center like what hasn't been covered uh in killer whale research and I got speaking to a lady who mentioned that their dentition is quite interesting she was coming from the sea world point of view Mm. where unfortunately they do have bad teeth Mm. and for a number of reasons but she said it's never really been studied um, between all the different yeah. types of killer whales in the I wild. I guess in captivity is stress a big it's, part. Yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. They start bar biting and mm. you know just doing things that damage their teeth, unfortunately. Mm. So yeah, so I, I just I thought okay, well I'll do this. I approached one of the marine biologists at my university and said, "This is the idea. Would you be my supervisor?" And she mm-hmm. kind of laughed at me. No, and no, said, no. Nah. We're never going to get this done. And you know, so no. <laughs> so I thought, oh. Okay, uh, I won't be disheartened. Went to another Good supervisor. For you. Yeah, and they were, and he was really excited. And um, you know, I, I did spend because I love killer whales, and I found this really interesting. I spent the whole year reaching out to people, and mm. because it was a desk study, like I couldn't go and ask killer whales to smile and like, yeah, photograph your teeth, please. Cheese. Yeah, <laughs> no. So I had to get museum collections and photographs of stranded specimens as well. So you know, I spent the year collecting the data, and then I got to write it. And it was really cool, and it was really interesting, um, and found out some really cool stuff. Yeah. So, did you, I know um, you found sort of some statistically significant differences yes. in the different um, type, the ecotypes um, of these killer whales. I just want to quickly explain, in case people don't know, ecotype. Um, so it's the how they differ morphologically and their behaviour and their diet based on where they live. In the world, is that? Yes, that's about. Basically, that about sums it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's quite a few different ecotypes depending on you know if you're in the states, you'll have like residents, transients, offshores, Norway type one and type two, uh, and then there's the Antarctic types as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, which are pretty cool. Never seen. But yeah. Oh, that's like one on the list. Yeah, yeah. one on the list. So you found significant differences, which is you know the science mm. buzz phrase that gets everyone all yeah. in a tizzy. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Um, I did, yeah. So essentially, there's a, a type called the offshore, and they mm-hmm. primarily eat sharks. Um, and cool. sharks have a thing that their skin, or their, they're not scales, but their scales, for lack of a better word. Yeah, overlapping called, sort of. Yeah. yeah. So they're called dermal denticles. Um, hopefully, I pronounced it correctly. <laughs> and it's really interesting because these are essentially modified teeth. So they're made of enamel, and that that's very why, cool. Yeah, I did not know that. I didn't either mm-hmm. until I researched. Yeah teeth and sharks apparently um and so essentially that repetitive grasping at that kind of tough enamel structure Mm -hmm. completely wears down the teeth of the offshore and we saw that in even very young killer whales um juveniles would have teeth that are starting to wear down Mm -hmm. and we had a measuring system so like one your score of one is a a beautiful perfect tooth that every killer whale should want to have like our perfect yeah yeah exactly um so for a killer whale it's just one shape and it's kind of pointy mm-hmm. and if it's pointed to the top it's a score of one and you can start to see like it will flatten down at the top mm-hmm. um which is what we looked at uh and yeah so the offshores had really bad teeth yeah and so by the end of their lives you can start to question like how are they being fed you know is there cooperative behaviors in the group where one mm-hmm. might make the kill and shred the animal the shark whatever they're eating yeah mostly sharks so did you know if there was a different a difference in lifespan with the offshore ones? We, it was really hard to judge because going off specimens, mm-hmm. people didn't always have the right information. Yeah. Or they could, with sort of the younger killer whales, you can group them in quite a loose age category. Mm-hmm. So it was it was hard. That would be really interesting, but yeah. I wasn't going into any DNA or any, anything yeah. that would give me a specific age. No. Um, so not too sure. Mm-hmm. That would be, you know, if, if someone was going to either pay me to take the study further or going to take the study further. You hear further. that, guys? If someone Please wants to pay her. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, yeah, definitely. That would be really interesting. Yeah. But so far, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
what your your findings did you is that what you expected to find what you hoped to find because I know from just reading through your paper that um, and having a little look online that offshores their diet is not as well known as mm, as yeah, the other ecotypes. Yeah. So was it something that you expected to find going into the research? Or? It, it is. I, th- I actually expected there'd be more variation, perhaps, between mm. some different groups. Um, offshores really came out on top as basically, like, by the end of their lives, they have teeth that are worn down to the gums. Yeah. yeah, some of them have um, exposed pulps, which mm. is when we would get a root canal or Oof, kind of filling yeah. or something, which they can't, obviously. They don't, no, they can't. We don't have killer whale so dentists. We just, we don't. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Uh, anyway, need a new job? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, so um, I did, I, I was curious to see if there was a bit more variation between different groups, maybe like the Antarctic killer whales, mm. but again, they're very hard to, to research because they're rarely seen. Obviously, yeah. if, a, if a killer whale dies out at sea, you know, when is its body going to wash up to yeah. shore and is it going to be a shore that someone can go and photograph and, and take um, data from that specimen. So also the research that has been done has been on those killer whales that we see a lot, like the residents mm-hmm. and the transients and a little bit yeah. offshores. But overall I was, I was really happy to show like the reason that these killer whales have no teeth essentially by the end of their lives is because they eat really tough. Uh, skin, yeah. or they have to cut through really tough skin, whereas the other, the fish-eating, seal, mammal-eating killer whales um, have pretty good teeth overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for certain killer whales that end up in a certain lifestyle mm-hmm. in captivity, because they don't <coughs> See actually what? have teeth. <laughs> yeah, so. And hashtag empty the tanks. Yes, we also read in your paper that the methods that you used and sort of the scoring of the teeth it could be applicable for use with other cetaceans. Um, so would is that something you'd want to branch out into? A whole um, I, teeth? For now, I feel like I would like to look at killer whale teeth a bit more. Just yeah. Because there, there is another paper, actually, that did a similar study, but across dolphinids, so dolphins, um, who all have very similar teeth. And they had a couple of killer whale specimens and then some other dolphin um, species as well. So it's it has been done a little bit, whereas specifically studying killer whales in mm-hmm. great detail hasn't mm-hmm. and I just love killer whales yeah. so yeah why not just you know stick yeah. to the animal that you really, really love and you saw them recently I did I went to Norway yeah. did the dream trip Yeah. cried it was my birthday <laughs> I think I cried three times honestly thank god it was a windy day because oh, yeah, everyone was wind. crying yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah it was the dream trip and I, I was sat on the boat in the morning I hadn't had enough coffee so I was pretty pretty tired anyway <laughs> But absolutely terrified I wasn't going to see any. And yeah. we saw so many killer whales. We saw some neonates, so like Yay. very, very newborn little that's bubbles amazing. that did some little happy birthday jumps for me. Oh, absolutely. What Especially I tell myself, anyway. Yeah. And then two humpback whales, or four. I think it was two. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Two going one way, two going the other, yeah. actually. Yes, it was, it was an incredible just day. Passing people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just doing their thing. Oh, it, was, it was very special. Mm-hmm. They are so beautiful to see in the wild. Yeah. yeah. Everybody must go. Yes. Oh, yes. I would love to. Um, there's something else I wanted to ask you as well about sort of the paper and, and killer whales in general um, and obviously this is sort of a conservation themed podcast so do you think sort of climate change and environmental degradation will eventually affect that tooth wear and for us seeing the wearing of the tooth teeth um, sort of letting us know that their food is changing like their diet is changing because of warming seas and they're having to eat different things like do you think yeah. that will have so i think if we did this study but bigger with you know mm-hmm. much bigger sample sizes because i was you know i only had a few months to write the paper anyway if we had much bigger sample sizes i think you could have a baseline this is what the teeth should be like and then yeah. you can record changes against these these baseline data sets mm-hmm. um which will tell you, yeah, you know, okay, this, this transient, which should have nice teeth, is not. And this is a pattern that we're seeing more and more, you know, their mm. teeth are getting extremely worn down. Are they changing diets? Mm-hmm. Because that's the main factor that we saw that would impact the wear on teeth, mm-hmm. was just their diet, purely. Um, so I think it would be very interesting, but again, this is something that would take years of yes. creating yeah. a, a base set of data to, to reference against mm-hmm. um, but I think it can be very telling and it's also very telling for their, their behaviour, their fitness levels, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. yeah. So I think it would be really interesting to see over time. Yeah. yeah. And I also wanted, I, I asked Jessie this, this question um, in her interview when she was 
um, horrified by the fact that people call gibbons great apes mm-hmm. or they call them a monkey mm-hmm. and they're neither. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you about killer whales and like people getting it wrong that they're a whale. And I wanted to <coughs> explain to the masses. Yes. <laughs> yes. Killer whales are very, very big dolphins, uh, <laughs> not whales. Their name, they have many names. Orca, Orcinus orca is their Latin name. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one story is that because they do kill whales, they yeah. were named like maybe killer whale, the whales, killer, and now yeah. yeah, whale killer, and now it's killer whale. Um, Been corrupted. Which you know is fine, but no, they're not whales. <laughs> Although I find when I'm emailing people about killer whales and I'm saying like something about da 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 whale this whale that, and then I'm like, well, but um, that's what do I say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially when you're emailing a scientist and it's you know you, you want them to know that you know what yeah you're about. yeah yeah, but also. You know, Stick with slip of the tongue or whatever yeah. it is. If, if it's a mistake, it's fine, I'll forgive you. Yeah. But once you've listened to this podcast, never tell me a killer whale as a whale again. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So that's all amazing, like interesting stuff. And I just touched on there where you, when you went to Norway on holiday mm-hmm. um, a few weeks ago for your birthday, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I wanted to ask you about sort of your whole travelling, living in different countries, mm-hmm. etc. history, because it's mm-hmm. quite varied and colourful. Um, I know you've been over in South Africa, Sicily, Norway, lived and worked in Australia as well. Um, yeah, could you give us a little whistle-stop tour, particularly touching on some work that you did in South Africa around lions? Yes. Okay, well, I guess I started travelling for my gap year, as some of us do. My gap year. Cliché, gap year. I didn't do too much chundering. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, and then I got hooked. And then I figured that, for me, the best way to travel was to travel when I could work or do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So actually, my undergraduate—I don't know if you know—my undergraduate mm. is in agriculture. Yes. So I did some yeah. farming. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I went to South Africa, I worked on a small, like a family farm, and it was actually like a twenty-minute drive from one of the world's best whale-watching spots as well. Oh my god, that's so perfection! It was incredible. So it was, and also I was in the right season mm-hmm. for the um, southern right whales to come and migrate by with their little babies. Uh, so I saw a lot of big whales, and that was really fun. Um, and yeah and then I fell in love with South Africa um, but it took me quite a few years until 2017 when I graduated with my masters Mm -hmm. and I got accepted to do some voluntary work um, at a private game reserve Mm -hmm. and it was working at their sort of wildlife rehabilitation Mm centre side note there was only one animal that was in the rehab (laughs) centre and there was three of us like hanging around just just, yeah doing whatever but I guess because of that and because of my background with research I got to um, be the lead author on on a paper looking at the reintroduction of lions onto Mm -hmm. this game reserve Mm -hmm. I say reintroduction because they would have been there historically Mm -hmm. but had been removed for reasons or another Um, so that was incredible because that was my first piece of research that was not through university that I didn't have my supervisors around to to help if I needed it it was my own paper and as the lead author, like my friend who worked on the same reserve um, was helping me and she had a, her bachelor's in some sort of maybe wildlife biology or conservation, mm-hmm. I can't remember. Um, something similar, but she had her bachelor's and so she hadn't done the same level of research, I guess. So I ended up taking the lead and it, it just, it was really cool to see this paper come into fruition yeah. and to think about all the aspects that you need to look into to, to see if you can bring lions in from all the biological side of um, you know ecosystems and, and is there enough food to sustain the population and even things like lion contraception taking into account yeah. you know, should should they be on contraception or, mm. or, sh- or should they just be allowed to, to breed willy nilly. Uh, Which is not the first thing that comes to mind when you think about animals. It's not, <laughs> no, no, not at all, not for wildlife. Um, and then also thinking about what will the local community think about mm-hmm. having lions? Because they've got all their cattle at free roaming, sometimes onto the game reserve back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was really, really cool. Uh, and then, what else have I done? Norway. I worked as a dog sledding guide in yeah. Norway in the Arctic Circle, which was very fun, very adventurous. Um, they have some wicked big wildlife out there, yeah. like the moose that come by, and um, obviously the whales, but I didn't see any at that time. And that was, it's just breathtaking. If you can go to Norway, go to Norway. Um, Been in the summer. I went to yeah. Oslo 
And we yeah, no, go up north. Yeah. Go into the Arctic. Because yeah. <laughs> it just sounds so cool to say as well, like, I used to live in the Arctic Circle. That is And I cool. did. Yeah. Uh, it was really cool. Um, yeah, and then Australia, the one sort of conservation job that I did out there was actually working as a face-to-face fundraiser mm. um, in Sydney for uh, an, a, an animal welfare organisation. And it was really interesting and, and it, cool, I guess, lack of a better word, to be able yeah. to just talk to the public mm-hmm. about something I'm passionate about anyway. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the whole point of this yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to yell at people I about know. stuff I like. <laughs> I know. I mean, you could have like a 20-minute conversation. I had an hour-long conversation with someone about all sorts of wildlife and then Mars for some reason. Oh, well, d- d- nice d- segue know, into things, things just, different yeah. sciences. Yeah, exactly. love it. It's very interesting. Yeah, so yeah. sort of whistle-stop tour. And Sicily, you went out there originally... Um, as a photographer, is that right, to photograph? So I, my family goes to Sicily on yeah. holiday a lot, and we went, um, well, I joined them from time to time, and I think last year or the year before last, I don't remember now, I went in September time, and there was a dog that was just in our driveway, mm. and um, he was so emaciated and so, you know, like, honestly, days from death, mm. um, and I, I don't say that, I mean, I say it knowingly, like I spoke to the vets. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we helped him get back to how he is now, a happy, healthy, bouncy boy who still needs a home. Yeah. And um, we found a shelter for him. And then, yeah, I went back as a photographer for this shelter, mm-hmm. um, obviously as a like voluntary basis sort of photographer. And just, I just, every time I'm out there now, we, we try and raise money for the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we won't give the money to the charity, not because we don't want to just hand over lots of cash, but it just makes sense if we can buy things that they really need mm-hmm. and the yeah. other thing we do is we put it behind uh, vet bills yeah. so we'll put usually like half of what we um, fundraise I suppose uh, we give to the vets and that will either cancel off a bill or mm-hmm. be there for the next emergency or whatever yeah. Um, but yeah my main thing is just to get some nice uh, photographs for the charity mm-hmm. to, to push their dogs for adoption Yeah. and what, what's the charity can you give the name of the um, I could if I could pronounce it, but it's, it, it's a German. So there's a German organisation, and there's uh, the Sicilian part of this um, uh, organisation is called the Phoenix Association, mm-hmm. um, which was named after the first dog the lady rescued, oh, which is really really sweet. And she pours her heart and soul into yeah. these dogs. You know, she really does everything she can for them. <laughs> One of her daughters is becoming a vet as well, so that that would be amazing. Yeah. When she passes. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The German one is like. Please, I hope no one in Germany is listening because in Germany rather because uh, I probably just mashed that up. I'll uh, I'll put a, a link in the show notes. Yeah. To yeah. Um, to that particular animal rescue place and it's um, the dog's biscotti. Biscotti because the only way we could feed him was a biscuit, an yeah. Italian biscuit. He's really cute and fluffy. He loves <laughs> people. Yeah. Yeah, he's just the best dog ever. Yeah, and he needs a home. He does so need a home. Check out the link on the show notes and you can go and, yeah. go and look at him. And and some of Audrey's lovely photography as well, um, which I wanted to ask you about as well. Yes. Like a chicken or the egg kind of question. So what came first, like your love of wildlife and that spilled over into photography or you already loved photography, had a flair for it and just moved towards photographing wildlife? Uh, wildlife first, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought um, that would be the case. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's always been animals for me. Um, but my brother got me my first camera when I left to go to live in Australia mm. and him and my family have always been super supportive. Um, I think my brother maybe wanted to be a photographer, I don't, yeah. I don't know. He was... He's, he was really good, mm-hmm. um, and now he's really good at understanding the technical side, which is great, because I'm not so good at the technical <laughs> side, or specifically not the wording and the blah, um, but the photography I love, and, you know, wildlife photography is so exciting, you just, yes. you know, you can just watch an animal for hours on end and not capture anything, but, mm-hmm. but, because you know what you want to capture, be it a specific behaviour or a look or, a, you know, whatever it is. Um, but no, now they're very much intertwined. Yeah, one would not be the same without the other. And just the process of like being there and attempting to yeah. get that shot, like yeah. even that in itself is an experience, yeah. isn't it? Just to be. I'm really there. bad though because sometimes I'm I'm a bit more in the moment with my camera as opposed to being in the moment, like physically just mm-hmm. watching the animals. I watch them through my lens quite a lot. Yeah, but I love it. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't trade yeah. everything. Yeah. And we can. Uh, you can find your photography page on Instagram. You can. Yes, at. Granger.studios.photography, I think. Yes. 
Granger.studios.geography. And that will be in the show notes as well. Um, I realise that I've forgotten to do that for the past few episodes. But starting from now, <laughs> I will, yeah, I will make sure that the show notes are there and links for everything mentioned in the episode, in this interview. Um, yeah, so that's really lovely stuff. Thank you so much for, for going through all of that. Um, I wanted to touch on as well sort of volunteering within the conservation world um, because I know a lot of people can get disheartened by yeah. always volunteering and not having paid opportunities yeah. and then there's the issue with volunteering at a place which may not be reputable it's yeah. just there for the yeah. for the profit yeah. and stuff yeah. um, but as this is a positive podcast mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you what you feel the value of volunteering for these places is and, and maybe some advice on people who are wanting to, to do that as well and how to find the right places well I'll start with the advice because I spent quite a long time looking at all these different places and, mm-hmm. and these possibilities um, definitely look into the research you know if they have a res- like we do this research mm-hmm. see if it's published see mm-hmm. if journalists have picked it up because that really helps because it means that you know if you're there for the research side of things you can you can see that they are going to journals and they are getting their, their research out there and that means that scientifically it stands mm-hmm. on a good leg so and then also just um, I mean there's a bunch of like Facebook pages where you can check if the places are reputable as well mm-hmm. yeah um, there's a lot of things like that um, I'm always cautious of the places that ask you to pay for working for them mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean to say that they're not actually exceptional places because yeah. there are a lot of good places that yes you have to pay a bit mm-hmm. to be there but the experience mm-hmm. you'll get is incredible um, for me volunteering is it's so useful um, I have worked voluntarily a lot with animals including dogs so mm-hmm. not just in the world of conservation yeah. but all of that has given me skills that I, I can take to any sort of new career if I wanted to. Um, working with animals, it gives you that patience and that ability to spot, you know, say an animal is, is injured. Anybody who hasn't really worked much with animals might mm-hmm. just not notice this. So miss you, that, yeah. You, yeah, you become more straight perceptive. away, uh, exactly, mm-hmm. you, you become more percep- perceptive in that. You can take into any mm-hmm. um, part of your life. Um, so that sort of attention to detail that you get is really important and really vital, I think, especially when we're working in something like conservation. Yeah, sure. Um, I've worked in a lot of remote places as well yes. because of the volunteering stuff that I've done. So I like my own company. Um, you know, it's very good, important. And that's a very important skill mm. to have, definitely. And also, from a work pers- perspective, just being able to be sort of self-motivated mm-hmm. and just get out there and do your job and then tackle any issues that you come up with mm-hmm. by yourself. The amount, yeah. the amount of pride you get from actually having resolved an issue is, is, is mm-hmm. really nice and it's yeah. a very important skill to have as well in the workplace. Definitely um, makes you resilient as well, you know, does. those days where you've just come off a day of horrible dirty field work yeah. and all you want to have is a nice warm shower and you yeah. can't. Yeah, <laughs> but you've just shower got shower is probably rainwater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've just got to carry on and just get on yeah. with it. We used to, uh, on the game reserve, we would do 25 days on, 5 days off. Mm-hmm. And when the storms came through, we were on top of a hill and we would be the only people who lost electricity for like 3 days straight. <laughs> so we would have emergency bucket showers because it got to a point where you live in a group and you kind of get smelly. Personal hygiene is important. It is a thing, <laughs> apparently, so they say. So we would just heat water on, thankfully we had a gas stove, so we'd heat the water on the gas stove and get like a tea mug Aww, or something. Just, just tip it over. Tip it over yeah. your little head. Um, yeah, and then for photography, you know, volunteering as a photographer, for me, the biggest thing it's given me is the ability to say, you know, I, ma- I did this, I made this, mm-hmm. I am actually good at this. And it is, I think, something that we all struggle to say. So yes, having definitely. that ability to, to have something there or to think about something in my mind and think, you know what, I did that. And that's pretty cool. Like, yeah. I think that's so important. That's we all mine. need to love ourselves a bit more. That's not yeah. too much of a cliche to say. Absolutely On this not. Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're recording on, we Valentine's, recording on Day. Valentine's Day. So lots of love to everybody. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's a lovely sentiment. Yeah. It's a nice perspective to have on whatever you're doing in life whatever you're working to do or create or or whatever it is yeah. that your interests are yeah. yeah just have an ownership of that thing that is yours you did it you made it you created it yeah and also all the skills that you get in you know you might be volunteering for a, a, a children's charity or something mm. all those skills are 100% transferable to conservation oh just, yeah you know when you say conservation you're not necessarily going to be the biologist in the field exactly. running around after god knows what you might be crunching data you might be checking papers, you might be doing the finance for a, a 
charity, you know, mm-hmm. all these things are super important and everything you do in life can lead you to that, that career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. I think anyway. Oh, well, I like that. I was going to ask at the very end, what's, do you have a, you know, a takeaway message or a positive message to say to people? But I think you've just, you've just said it, which is lovely. So uh, I'll ask you the silly questions then. (laughs) The bit which I have given some preparation time for because they can be, they can catch people off guard. Um, So the first one Hmm. is which animal adaptation would you like to have? So I really had to think about this because I would like to have wings to fly because I think that'd be awesome. Who wouldn't? Yeah. But exactly. But then I was thinking like, what have I always wanted to be able to do in life? And that's sing. Like I have Aww, an awful singing me voice. Me too. <laughs> Shower voice is, is phenomenal, mm. but maybe not for other people apparently. Yeah. So I would like to be able to sing like a whale or like a starling or Aww, like any nice singing that's animal. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh, on this Valentine's Day I as well. Know. I could serenade everybody from the rooftops. Yeah. Yeah. At dawn and dusk. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. That's my favourite answer so far. No, 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 thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question, um, which I'm excited to hear this answer actually, uh, which is who would play hmm. you in a movie of your life? So... I did explain that I don't know actors and actresses by name. I know, you know, this person with the brown hair and the little nose and whatever. But I did Google this. So I'm obsessed with um, a really cheesy TV series called Heartland, which is based in Canada. Mm -hmm. And she is a cowgirl or cowboy, whatever you want to call them. And that's something I've always wanted to do, weirdly. I love ponies and I love being outside. Um, So the main actress is called Amber Marshall, uh, which I had to Google, obviously. (laughs) And she's just so cool. She, like... She knows when to stand her ground and she's sassy but in a good way mm-hmm. and she knows when to say no and she knows when to say yes and you know it's just she's a really cool character really headstrong in a in a, in a way I would love to be yeah. for sure so that's who I would want to play me oh I'm going to get what was it Amber Amber Marshall, Marshall Heartland just Heart. watch Heartland okay oh just what I'll just watch just it watch yeah yeah all eleven series there's a twelve series coming out I think yeah soon, so. That's the homework for this episode. That's the yeah. <laughs> binge watch Heartland. Please <laughs> do. And lots of wildlife in Heartland in a good way too. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. Live your live your cow person fantasy. I do live vicariously through yeah. my uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for giving up your lunchtime it's been to a speak to me. And um, yeah, as I say, I'll put all of your, I'll put your photography link um, and the link to the rescue centre in Sicily in the show notes so people can yeah. check that out yes. and uh, give you lots of likes and lots of love on this lovely Valentine's Day. Thanks guys. <laughs> That'd be lovely. Aww. And adopt a biscotti. Yes. Yes. Please. Someone please. <laughs> okay. So that is us over and out. Thank you all for joining me for episode four of Turn on the Light. I hope you enjoyed listening about the grey whale story um, and hearing all about Audrey's adventures. Um, As I said in the interview there, I'll pop in the show notes links to... um, all of her bits of information, her Instagram, you can follow her journeys, um, her photography, um, and of course the Sicilian strays as well. Um, you can find the podcast on Instagram at Turn On The Light Pod, on Twitter at Saving Species, and email at Turn On The Light Pod at gmail.com. So if you wanted to follow along just to see what I'm up to um, or contact me for any reason, you can find me at those addresses. Um, The links will be also in the show notes. Um, So thank you ever so much for joining me. Um, And just remember everyone to stay positive, stay safe, keep washing your hands um, and find, you know, that little something that keeps you sane. um, In amongst all this craziness, you know, whether it's cuddling your dog, reading a book, um, drawing a nice picture of a of a pretty plant or a cute animal or you know whatever it is that keeps you sane and happy um stay safe everyone and i will speak to you all in a couple of weeks thank you bye bye and remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light